0: Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, as always, and excited today because we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Richard Gamble, who is a history professor at Hillsdale College. He's also an elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He has a website, richardmgamble.com, where you can find all his books. In fact, I have two of them sitting right here. I have a fiery gospel, and, and this is a book that I picked up a year ago and started reading, and I thought, oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The social justice issue that we talk about today is very similar to uh, the reform movements that happened in the 19th century. It's a very similar battle that's going on in the church. And so I started reading this last week, another book by Richard Gamble called In Search of a City on a Hill. And I thought I have to have this guy on because he's way smarter than me on these topics. And this is an area that I think we have touched on. We've teased. We haven't really gone fully into, and um, and that is a civil religion on the right, on the left. We talk about it on the left a lot on this podcast, but we're going to talk about it some more. Uh, does America have a civil religion? Uh, if so, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Uh, what should we as Christians, Bible believing Christians, Orthodox Christians, how should we navigate this? And so, um, thank you so much, Dr. Richard Gamble, for joining me. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, John. It's a privilege uh, to be with you, get to know you, and certainly a privilege to be able to talk to an interested audience who understands maybe what's at stake in these conversations.
0: Oh, there's so much at stake. And I just feel actually like, like, I wish I had 10 hours with you because there's so much that we haven't been told or, or not that we haven't been told. It's not like there's a sinister conspiracy. They're just, it's just forgotten. And history is so often I find used for political purposes today that we don't have an understanding of the past as much as we ought to. And, um, and you're someone who seems to understand the past, respect the past. And, and you, and you view used it a foreign country, you leave it, you, you don't try to impose, you know, presentism, the assumptions of today, which I appreciate so much. Um, first question for you. So this topic of America's civil religion, um, in, in the fiery gospel, you talk about the battle of the republic and a city on a hill. You talk about John uh, is it John Winthrop's speech, a uh, city on a hill speech they call it now, and and you trace these things and and you show how these these biblical images are used so often in political discourse on both the right and the left. What made you interested in that? That's just not a topic I see most people writing about.
1: That I'll have to do some archaeology, some uh, intellectual archaeology here, John, to answer you. My interest in the problem of how scripture gets reused, gets appropriated, the way that the identity of the church gets appropriated for the purposes of the state, that goes back more than 30 years for me, and maybe in some ways back into my childhood. But when I first started graduate school, my PhD program at the University of South Carolina, I was looking for a topic. What did I want to uh, study for my dissertation? And I was interested broadly in the question of modernity, of theological modernism, of the liberal movement. In a lot of ways, I was on a pilgrimage myself toward confessional reform, Presbyterianism, and coming to understand what that meant for the life of the church, my own place within the church. And I hit upon the idea of looking at the liberal clergy in America and wrestling with the problem of why the liberal social gospel clergy in America who emerged in the post-Civil War generation who talked about world peace and humanity and brotherhood and justice, and yet became some of the most jingoistic supporters of Woodrow Wilson and intervention into World War I. So I wanted to understand their minds. Uh, what, what made it possible for them to continue to see themselves as advocates of world peace, of permanent world peace, but also be uh, interventionist uh, warriors, uh, frustrated, sometimes frustrated with Woodrow Wilson that he wasn't going far enough, fast enough. And that's what I worked on. That, that became my first book, uh, The War for Righteousness, which you can add to your list. And uh, that, that uh, came out about 20 years ago now, but it's really based on work from about 30 years ago.
0: Well, you have, I haven't read the, that particular book, but you have some excellent lectures out there. And I did listen to one that was hosted on the Abbeville Institute website from like 10 years ago, where you talk about this. And, uh, and I saw another one on YouTube where you talk about this and, uh, and I, I find that fascinating. World War One is fascinating. Um, and so if we have time, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um, you'd go back though, even farther, you go back to the Puritans. Is, is that where this begin? Where, where does this, uh, American civil religion, for lack of a better
1: term, where does that start? Sure. Um, you got to You got to let me know, John, if I if I go off in too many directions simultaneously here, I'm going to try to map this out. I, some of my views have changed over the last 30 years. Uh, it would be it would be a shame if I didn't keep learning. And and I want to revisit this question of the Puritan understanding of church and society or or church and state loosely, or uh, the whole question of being God's new Israel, uh, having a messianic identity. I have have rethought some of that and I'll come back to that. But, But probably a fundamental question is what do we actually mean by civil religion? And this phrase gets used in two ways that are compatible with each other, but I think we need to keep them distinct. And I have more objections to one as a Christian, as an American, as a conservative than I do to the other. The more benign form of what we call civil religion is the, is the affirmation of principles, uh, heroes, experiences, that bind us together as an American people. Uh, to think back to uh, you know the, the colonial period, we talk about the need to return to first principles. Virginia talked about this in the Virginia Bill of Rights. So what are those first principles? And there's a sense in which those first principles help bind us together, give us a, a sense of community, of, of, of a common cause, a common life together And if we take the original meaning of the word religion from the Latin, it means to bind together. So if that's all we mean by civil religion, that we want to affirm those principles, experiences, ways of living, our heroes, we want to affirm the things that bind us together, then I have no quarrel with civil religion. But it never ends there. Uh, and, and we have to think of this in, uh, in contrast to the appropriation of the Bible and making it a civil religion for the purposes of our own nation state, our own identity, uh, for our own consciousness as a people, for our own sense of what our role is in the world, what we owe ourselves and other people if we take on the identity of the church, and particularly of the mission of Christ, then that's that's something that Christians have to be alert to, aware of, on guard against, and and shouldn't shouldn't feel awkward or be made to feel awkward or unpatriotic if they defend those boundaries. I'll add one other nuance to this. There's there's a way in which the affirmation, that first category I talked about, that first way of understanding civil religion, there's a way that affirmation of principles or documents like the Declaration of Independence or an ideology, uh, an ideological point from the 19th century or from Cold War America, there's a sense in which that can be elevated uh, to the level of the sacred on a level that competes with our Christian faith, or an an affirmation of a principle that's actually found nowhere in scripture, or nowhere within our tradition, and yet we embrace it and defend it as if it were a fundamental part of our faith. So this this gets messy, but but I think all this is going on simultaneously, and we need to be aware of what we actually mean by civil religion. And those who dismiss any concern about it, uh, make light of it as if we're just being too fussy about things, they might be thinking of civil religion in that more benign sense. As someone said to me recently, well, you know, do you really have a choice? Do you really have a choice? You're stuck with civil religion. And I thought, well, I do have a choice. And I'm not stuck with certain manifestations of civil religion. And, uh, and, and we can, I've called for this in print recently. We need to go back through American history and tell the story. It's never been told. Tell the story of those who, re, who resisted the construction of a civil religion that competed with the Christian faith. That story is out there. And that story needs to be told.
0: That's excellent, and I'm glad that you wanted to define things before we jumped into the lineage here of where this idea came from. I, I think it would be good for me to just share for the context and for this, the audience, for their interest, uh, kind of where we're approaching this from, our historical context, because right now we have a controversy over Christian nationalism, as you know, whatever that is, there's a spectrum, and I've read a number of the books, and they're not all the same, but... It seems to me, you could correct me if I'm wrong, that those on the left, including the evangelical left, seem to react every time there's any fusion of American symbolism or patriotism with Christianity in any sense. And to the point that you get the impression they want a secular public square where we just don't even have in God we trust in in courtrooms. I remember uh, doing some of my early research on this topic and going back to Jim Wallace, and Ron Sider and some of these guys who signed the Chicago declaration back in the seventies. And that was their main beef was that there was this false religion. The first uh, issue of the post-American, which became sojourners was Jesus with a crown of thorns and this American flag draped over him, And and, and this was a horrible thing that we're combining these things. And and they wanted to return in their minds to the purity of a first century Christianity that was devoid of this uh, influence. And yet they could not see in themselves how they were, probably 10 times worse in fusing the power of the state and their own I guess leftist uh, tradition in American history with their own Christianity and and that's what we have today in my opinion is we have uh, this knee-jerk reaction against anything that's pro-American or patriotic even the most benign things right and uh, this adoption though of you know like Things like we have a temple of democracy in D.C., which shall not be violated by the one wash ma- masses on January 6th. It's like, what is that? You know, or um, uh, one one final example. I remember Sam Smith, who uh, I studied under at Liberty University, pointed out to me, he goes, start talking about dividing the United States up, that some regions shouldn't be with other regions, perhaps because they can't get along. And he said, you will have both sides come after you as a traitor. As, and I said, why is that? Think about it. It's weird, isn't it? It's It's odd that we we view the union as something sacred at at the level in which we would view perhaps most of our dearly felt theological concerns. And so I hope I'm tracking right with what you're saying, but these are some concrete examples of what I see happening in regards to civil religion out there.
1: Yes. Um, And John, you're right that, that there are so many things at play all at once right now. And I've gotten involved in controversy over Christian nationalism what we mean by it, and one of the uh, one one of the most difficult things in trying to communicate with others and trying to teach, is the 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 nuances of questions of how and how we're using words like Christian nationalism and where this came from, and I can make a point, raise a concern about the way Christians talk about their nation or the way they worship in their churches and sometimes seem to be worshiping America. And I can sound like the left. And one of the things that's been frustrating for me, and I think so urgently needed, is we need to open up space for a patriotic Americanism that is, is also very guarded in what it says about the identity of America that, that polices the boundary between our Christian faith and our love for America, that, that is able to understand uh, hierarchies of love. And we don't love America the same way we love Jesus. And we don't love it the same way we love our families. To open up a space in which Christians can talk about the, the the demands that that the nation makes upon them, that the politicians make upon them, that civil religion makes upon them, and and distinguish that from from their own Christian faith, and and not feel guilty, or or I should say, not feel forced. Into a position of like a defending America in, uh, in extreme terms because the left is condemning it in extreme terms, uh, there have to be other options out there. There have to be other options in which serious, orthodox, confessional Christians who love their country. Can talk in a way that is historically informed. Can talk intelligently, and and to to be alert to, to what's really going on. And I can I can say more too. Uh, uh, if you want to follow up on this, the there's a blind spot out there now. Uh, thinking back to my work on World War One, so many people think or 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 pretend to think that Christian nationalism is somehow a, a recent invention of the Christian right. right. And it's only MAGA Republicans who are now guilty of, of this of Christian nationalism when it should, would be so easy to demonstrate that the things that they object to the most were actually part of their movement. And in another way, strange way, kind of still are part of their movement, but going all the way back to left wing evangelicalism in 19th century america those guys perfected christian nationalism and they the left needs to own that needs to be forced to own that that the things that they worry so much about uh, are actually uh, a lot of it is a product of the left
0: well i was doing some research on this uh, just you know on google books looking back to see what's the earliest time we can see that term used and it seems to be the most popular like, I, I think it was an Ngram search I did where you see the term used and there's this little blip kind of in the early 1900s and people were using Christian nationalism and then you don't see it for a while. And now, no of course, now you see it all over the place. And I wondered, what was that little rise at the you know beginning of the 20th century? And it's these Bellamy clubs that were avowed socialists and they used the term Christian nationalist of themselves. And I thought, well, that's curious because that seems like the opposite of what <laughs> yeah. we're being told it is now, right. at least um, man, I want to trace the lines a little uh, with you. And I know we don't have time to get into detail on everything, but, and and as a good American, right, I want the good guys, bad guys, the black and white, which I need to fight because there, there isn't clear cut lines on that. But, but I'd love to know where you think this springs from on both the left and the right, uh, this, this fusion, this syncretism, if you will. Um, is it the Puritans? Does it go back before them? Is it some kind of mystical pietism? Where does this start, this story?
1: Oh. John, how many days do we have here? Yeah, I know. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you you can find, I want to choose my words very carefully here, and perhaps too carefully for the patience of, of your listeners. But there are elements of like making the nation sacred that go way back. Uh into medieval Europe, late medieval early modern, you can read about how how people were talking about the reign of Queen Elizabeth in England and her as the Deborah of her people, drawing from the old testament judges uh, uh talking about this little Israel in describing in describing uh England of the reign of Elizabeth. I think that phrase might even appear. In the dedicatory preface of the Geneva Bible, and 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 what to make of all that is not easy to know, uh, and and there's you know that was a time when there's there was an established church, controversy within the established church, uh, the Queen was the head of the church on earth, there, there's a. a a melding of identities already in place that made it very easy to speak that way. And some of that the Puritans bring with them uh, to North America. Uh, And there's there's um, I'm, I'm doing more work right now. One of the reasons I'm hemming and hawing right now is that I'm immersed in further work on the Puritans and what they brought with them their understanding of of themselves of of the church of the christian faith that they brought with them i think this is this is my uh this is my this is current me i might later disagree with current me (laughs) but my sense now is that in the 20th century we started exaggerating the puritan messianic consciousness in america My hypothesis is that the new left in the 1960s in its opposition to the Vietnam War, in its countercultural movement, as they were, they went around diagnosing pathologies, the American pathologies, and a kind of self-loathing movement, uh, uh, rejecting America, rejecting what America had stood for, Uh, There are lots of reasons to have lots of different views of Vietnam, uh, but the hard left that tried to trace American involvement in Vietnam back to like the American DNA, uh, the American genetic code, that this is who we've always been. Uh, We've always been uh, crusaders, messianic people. It's my hypothesis right now that a set of scholars in the 1960s, some books I've actually used in the past and used to depend on a lot. We're actually creating, even if they didn't know it, we're creating a false memory in America and ended up making the American messianic consciousness, uh, just for a shorthand here, uh, more typical of the American past than in fact it actually was, making manifest destiny more characteristic of the American past than it actually was. Now, to undo that narrative or to test that narrative, would require a lot of work, and I think, thanks to Perry Miller and others, the way they wrote about the Puritans in New England, they created a false, fake news. Right? They created fake news, uh, and and people get trapped in thinking, and I think this happened after starting in the 1960s as well, that because the left was attacking this story, uh, this this identity of messianic identity, manifest destiny, that there were those on the right who felt obligated to defend it. Neither side realizing that we might have gotten the story wrong. Now that might be too complicated, uh, a, a line of inquiry for us to pursue right now. But this is my concern that we have been saddled with a fake story and that Americans were much more level-headed in the 19th century than we give them credit for. We have gone back and quoted the most quotable, which is what we do all the time. It's just like current news. We go back in history and we quote the most quotable. That proves our point, And we have missed, uh, The way ordinary Americans were actually thinking about their nation, their people, their place in the world.
0: That's fascinating. You you point some of this out in *The search in the city on the hill that uh, it wasn't until I don't remember what time in the 20th century that people focus on that particular phrase, even calling it the city on a hill speech. Right. Whereas before that was even that wasn't considered significant. We don't even know if it was delivered. Right. We don't even know no. if this was actually a given as a speech. Right. I always thought it was. I had this image in my mind of, of John course. Winthrop on this hill. You know, at, almost like a Sermon on the Mount type situation. And uh, and, and that may have never happened. Um, you do, though, see in that right some of the I don't know the roots of this, though, don't you? Where he is fusing the these understandings of the church and the community that the puritans were establishing.
1: Right. Um, and, and, and certainly the ways, the ways in which that is going to be used, right. And, and, and m- made a precedent. This is part of my point in that book and my subsequent thinking over the last 10 or 12 years, the uses to which the model of Christian charity and Winthrop, the uses to which that will be put as a authenticating precedent for the way we're talking about America now. I think that's the real story. Um, John Winthrop and countless others of his generation do open the door for that. Uh, But one of the things to remember with Winthrop, and and I hammer away at this with my students is that he was talking to a tight-knit group, a, a highly homogeneous, tight-knit group of Christians for whom, uh, to, uh, and for him it was normal for him to address them as if they were a Christian congregation. He was interested in catechizing them. In fact, my, my new line of inquiry about the model of Christian charity, that it's actually in the form of a doctrinal lecture. He begins with the doctrine of providence and that he is drawing heavily from the catechisms, especially the catechisms on the 10 Commandments, the very vocabulary, I'm giving away my good stuff right now. Uh, I'm I'm telling my secrets, Uh, that the very vocabulary that he uses in the model of Christian charity is coming right out of expositions of the 10 Commandments the whole section on giving, lending, forgiving. This is language. It shows up later in the Westminster uh, larger and shorter catechism. Uh, He's drawing from a common heritage there. So to answer your question, he, he thought of himself as giving pious advice to a Christian community about how to live together as brothers and sisters within the bonds of Christ. Now, what gets done with that uh, is another story entirely. And as I said, I think the story of what gets done with that and the way that gets secularized or reappropriated, the way Winthrop gets reinvented in the 19th century, that's the big story for American civil religion. And as you know, from the book, nobody read The Model of Christian Charity for 208 years. Right eighteen thirty eight that it was published, so it's not even part of our American consciousness zero zip yeah uh, Tocqueville doesn't know about it because it hasn't been published yet when he's in America and writing about the Puritans so
0: hey friends, I just want to interrupt the podcast very briefly to share with you one of the sponsors for this podcast, Covenant Academy online. They have great resources for you if you're a homeschool parent or a teacher at a Christian school uh, they have live online classes that meet two times a week for 15 minutes each. And it's for grades four through 12, the grading of assignments with comments back to the student who completes the assignment, access to instructors via email for questions, report cards are issues, grade transcripts are available on request. I mean, it's everything you really need. And it's, here's the kicker. You don't actually have to pay anything. You know, donations are suggested, but uh, this is all for free, technically. This is all being offered to you to assist you in your homeschooling or your child's Christian school um, experience. And if if you go to covenantacademyonline.com and you get a login, you can see some of the classes that they offer. And for for example, uh, if you go to their catalog, uh, you can see that there's 50 different items by grade level. So if you have a sixth grader and you click on sixth grade courses, there's world history, there's language, there's literature, there's math, there's Bible. All of these things can be uh, given or they can be uh, administered in in a way that helps your student or child understand these topics and assists you with the homeschool load, the burden that you have. I know my parents had that when I was going through school. And they would have appreciated something like Covenant Academy Online. Go now today to covenantacademyonline.com. Check it out. Well, it's, I don't know if we want to go down this stream too far, but it's interesting to me that the Puritans are uh, by both sides, I guess, really the models that are focused on as far as the, the, the founders of the country, the first right. examples when you had the Dutch, you had, right. you know, preceding them in Virginia. Uh, the colony there. You already had the Spanish in Florida, not that they were as influential, but it's not like the Puritans were the first. Plymouth predated them. I don't understand exactly why that still carries so much water. And I don't know if we have time to explore that fully, but (laughs) is that because of what you just said, I'm wondering, because it was useful to appropriate their language for modern political purposes?
1: Yes. Uh, This is one of my favorite topics. Another one of my favorite topics. Uh, You may have heard of the book, Uh, Sam Smith may have recommended this to you. Uh, Carrie Roberts is a big fan of this book by Harlow Shidley called Sectional Nationalism. I I highly recommend that book. Uh, She there shows, without a doubt, the way that Boston, the publishing world, the academic world, the textbook world in New England, mobilized. In the early 19th century, to tell a story about America that began with the Puritans. And this would be the only true, authentic story. And part of this, it's a response to the embarrassment of New England's resistance to the War of 1812 and the convening of the Hartford Convention. And they did everything they could so they wouldn't be remembered as the first secessionists. And they deliberately... Consciously wrote American history in a way to prove that they were 100% the real, authentic America, and the other regions were deviations from that real America. That takes hold in the 19th century, and we still, it's still in all of our textbooks today. Chronology doesn't get in the way because you got to talk about the Puritans of 1630 before you talk about the Virginians of 1607. Um, Tocqueville perpetuates this uh, in Democracy in America. He says that American civilization uh, shone, shined out like a beacon from from New England. Uh, this idea becomes the dominant narrative. And it is incredibly misleading and it does an injustice, as you said, to the Dutch, uh, to uh, the Scots-Irish, to Southern Anglicans, to uh, it, it does an injustice to so many other groups.
0: Well, it, and, and one final thing on this thread, since I know I will want to get back to the civil religion aspect of this, but. Um, in recent years, as you probably well know, there's been this, some people call it young restless reform movement now, now that's they're not so young. So it's, <laughs> it, it's more like 20 years ago that I guess that yeah. was really starting. Uh, and it, I think the, the most probably recognizable figure in promoting the Puritans would be John Piper in that and, and getting people to read Jonathan Edwards and George Marston's, uh, biography of him. And, um, all this seems to dovetail with some of that in my mind. I don't know exactly how, but the Puritans, not that we shouldn't study them, not that, I mean, you're studying them, not that there aren't things to glean, but they become exclusively the, uh, authorities on theology. So not just what being an American is, but also on what being a Christian is for many reformed people today. I don't know if you have a comment on that before we get back to the.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, I think we need a better understanding of the breadth of what we call the Puritan tradition. Uh, it's one of those labels that is so easily misused. Uh, as you well know, and your listeners know, Puritan was used as a pejorative label for narrow-mindedness, sectarianism. Uh, but if we look at the broader reform tradition in England, we discover, and this is some really recent research, which is exciting, how indebted English Puritanism was to continental reform thought. Uh, We knew about some of the Lutheran influence, but if now we're understanding that like the Heidelberg Catechism, Ursinus, other uh, Dutch theologians, there is a broader tradition. And I think that broader tradition was actually brought to America. That's one of the things I wanna demonstrate more was, more was brought to America than what you're talking about, than a very narrow definition of what it meant to be a Puritan. And there's a distinction be, between sort of an American character to the Puritans and then that broader so-called Puritan tradition uh, in England and then its indebtedness back to continental European, European thought.
0: Um, I'd love to explore that more, but that's for another podcast. So, uh, thanks for giving all of your your secrets all away. So now someone else can pick up these threads and explore exactly. <laughs> exactly. your thunder. Uh, all right. So the we have the Puritans. We just talked about them briefly, and and they opened the door, as you said, for some of this civil religion thinking. More so, I, I would assume than those in Virginia, the Anglicans down there, the Presbyterians, right? Uh, and and so that gets um as we chrono- chronologically go through the 19th century does that translate into the second great awakening and some of the reform movements like i'm thinking uh, abolitionism women's uh, suffrage uh, uh, anti-prohibition anti-masonry i mean are these things also do they come directly from that or
1: john you know i can't give you a straight answer uh i know
0: i know just give me the best you can
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh let me think how to come at this, and and part of the complexity for me here is just just how my own uh, my own way of organizing this in my head is under assault right now, uh, and and I'm and I'm struggling.
0: I just spilled paint yeah. on your your very finely written papers, haven't right. I? Just <laughs> right,
1: right. Um, yeah, to to and to circle back to an earlier point too. I think. Uh, it's been my argument, and a piece I published in in October, I argue that that there's there's an unexplored way to figure out where American civil religion came from. And my recommendation is that we find the points at which civil religion was being resisted. And that will help us see it in action, see it being created in real time. Now, we know about the big wars. The civil religion was a, a factory of American civil religion, America's redemptive identity, um, messianic America. That's, that's where so much of it came from. But I think we can find it. You're right that there's, there's an element of this in the Second Great Awakening, Um, there's an element of it in the reform movements in a certain understanding of what it meant to have a Christian nation and Christianizing the nation through these reform movements that a Christian America would not have any alcohol, tobacco, uh, it would not have capital punishment or certain kinds of prisons, all those reform movements. I, I think There's an element there that that is easily woven into or or, um, not woven into, but but is evidence for demonstrates a certain conception of of a nation, what a nation is and to complicate your life and my life. We also have to throw in here that we have to deal with the rise of romantic nationalism in the 19th century and the impact of European ideology on Americans who were eager to embrace that ideology. And a lot of the key people of the abolitionist movement in New England were also great admirers of the romantic nationalist movements in Europe. Uh, And I think is another one of my hypotheses, giving away my my stuff, I I think that they consciously, some of them, some of the theologians and philosophers and literary people consciously wanted to endow America with a European romantic nationalist understanding of itself. Too many adjectives there. Uh, so, So to make America more European in its nationalist identity, that's never been, well, it's been explored in some ways, but not in the, not from the angle I'm, I'm mentioning. So if we have a rise of a certain kind of civic religion and a certain kind of Christian nationalism, we have to do a careful study of nationalism and, and, and how that is actually fighting against a federated republic in the 19th century. And here's one of my ideas I'll tease you with. Can you have a robust civil religion in a federated republic? Do you need one?
0: Are you asking me?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just asking you to ponder this. Can you
0: have a a, run that by me one more time because I'm trying to process it? Let
1: me let me. (laughs) This can be a a federated republic
0: where states have sovereignty. You're
1: saying so a decentralized federated republic does that require a robust civil religion? Mm in the way a nation state does, no. It shouldn't. It shouldn't, it shouldn't. So I think this is a factor as well, that people who, who promote civil religion are much more likely to be centralizer nationalist types because they know that they need civil religion to glue all the pieces together the way Italy needed one, the way Prussia needed one. Uh, yeah.
0: I see what you're saying. Yeah. Play so with that. we have the illusion in our country of a federal republic, and, but it's not really that. And, and this is part of the reason it's not that. Uh, if PhD students are listening, trying to consider what dissertation topic to pick, I think you've given them about five different things that haven't been written on. Uh, so there you go. That's our free I'm happy. service view.
1: I like I like exporting, exporting my ideas. Yeah. I don't like exporting democracy, but I like exporting my ideas.
0: Well, in this book, A Fiery Gospel, I just want to talk about this briefly, since we're on the 19th century right now, and we don't have much more time anyway. Uh, and I think that's originally what I emailed you about, was let's talk about this book, which we haven't talked about yet. Uh, you do trace the use of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I found uh, the opening pages like uh this the term that's used out there now is red pill. Like I was red pilled. I I was reading these and I was thinking like oh my goodness. Th- this is what I'm I feel like I'm hearing the same exact thing today from the woke left in you know social justice evangelicals. It's just change a few words. And um and so the idea of we're going to mobilize the church to um, support the war effort through these hymns that are now sung like every 4th of July, even in places like Mississippi. I was surprised I was there. I'm like, why are you singing <laughs> this hymn? But it, it, it's, it has nothing to do with, uh, or little to do with Christ and uh, biblical theology. It has everything to do with the war effort.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and this is now just ingrained in our American psyche, uh, a Christian psyche even in the United right. States to a, a point where you can't even challenge that there's probably f- people listening right now who are offended that I even just said something mildly uh, criticizing. So yeah, I was just, I guess I should probably ask a question in this little diatribe. What, um, with the battle hymn of the Republic and, and everything that surrounded that, that first war movement preceding world war one, our first, I guess, national righteous war. Um, do you think that we're st- still, in that same conflict that that conflict never really resolved itself. Because I'm wondering that. Are we still in a civil war over these uh, same issues? And and it, and it is in a civil religion on one side and a decentralized form of government on the other.
1: I Give should, me the I, complex I,
0: answer. It doesn't have to be simple.
1: <laughs> I, I, I should just let you put a period at the end of that instead of a question mark. Uh okay. <laughs> I I and you know how it is. I mean I don't I don't want to be Misunderstood. I don't want to be misquoted. Uh, There there is a sense in which the Civil War has been an unending Civil War about much more than questions of uh, even more than questions of the Southern identity, of of questions about uh, slavery and so on. And there's a reason why, yeah, I'm thinking on my feet here. Uh, There's a reason why the The Civil War became so important, uh, it was so useful for the construction of a civil religion, why Abraham Lincoln became uh, the figure, uh, even among the the New South representatives like uh, uh, Grady and others uh, in the South of the pushing the New South agenda. Lincoln was this central iconic figure who was going to bind America together. Uh, that he perfectly combined the Puritan and the and the Cavalier into the true American, that started to happen right away, and you add that with the Battle hymn of the Republic and uh, and and other aspects of of that war, it gives us. I'll trot out some more ideas that people can steal here. There's a book years ago by a German cultural historian, comparative historian, called Cultures of Defeat, comparing post-war South, post-Franco-Prussian War France, and post-World War I Weimar Germany. What do we learn when we do that? And I was so struck by that, that uh, the, the words culture of defeat and what it would be like to live in a culture of defeat... But i think that we ought to ought to recognize as well the companion idea of a culture of victory and i think the union victory in the civil war the legacy of that is a culture of victory and 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 that proved to be habit forming and there's a reason why, and it's so easy for me to be misunderstood here, uh, but there's there are reasons why every, every campaign crusade, international war after that has been characterized as a war of emancipation of some kind. Uh, right after the war, some of those who were in the inner circle, the secret six behind uh, Frederick Douglass uh, Frederick Douglass he was John Brown, part of that yeah. group behind John Brown yeah. uh, the they by 1867 they're already forming the uh, an anti-alcohol party and saying explicitly that this is going to be the next abolitionist crusade uh, so there's something about that and if you know the old um, I'd love to come and just talk about this short story uh, with you sometime Please. You know the uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne short story "Earth's Holocaust."
0: Uh, I I know Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'm not sure if All I right. Know All the right, story. you read this.
1: I'm giving you homework here. Yeah, you read "Earth's Holocaust," and you want to talk about somebody who, in 1844, understood the mentality of woke and everything else. That whole story. Yeah. Uh, The reformers end up setting the whole world on fire out of their good intentions and in their war against the past and all tradition. It's an amazing story. And my students love it's their favorite reading of of maybe the whole curriculum. Uh, And they understand their own time uh, better because of that, the power of that story. So there's something about that, that that Hawthorne identified already in 1844. And one of the recurring phrases in that story is one heave more. As soon as we throw this on the fire, right, we'll burn that up one heave more. So the Civil War, but also something older than the Civil War, left us with that, that, that uh, hope that if we just heave one more thing into the fire, then we will have a more perfect union. Then America will be uh, uh, pure and right, and 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 it will be. And there's that Gnostic temptation there. America will finally be a place pure enough for me to live in it.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's a utopian scheme, is it really is. what it is. It and is. It, it seems like the transcendentalists uh, before them and. Um, you know, I, I, know we have to kind of end the interview because we've, uh, we've gone at about 45 minutes now or so. I just, I, I do want to say though, that this is, there's so much more that needs to be talked about in regards to this written on this and, and not just in research, but, um, distilling it down for the practical level for layman today. Cause I right. think the obvious question for people listening is how shall we then live? What, what does this right. mean for me? Um, Does that mean that I shouldn't be a Christian nationalist? I I know I shouldn't be woke. Probably most of the people listening to this podcast uh, at least know that they should. And, you know, what does that mean for me? And so uh, for you, I'm just this is a very personal question. Sure. But how does this uh, look? What does this look like in your life? I mean, do you attend 4th of July parades? Or do you just keep that separate? You say, yeah, I'm at a 4th of July parade, but I also know my Christian identity doesn't necessarily intersect as strongly as it does for, say, uh, I don't know, the, the religious right in the 80s or sure. something.
1: Sure. Uh, happy to answer that. I, I do go to the 4th of July parade. It, it goes. Uh, I'm in a small town in Michigan, and I wouldn't miss it. Uh, and the whole town turns out and I go down just half a block from my house and I can sit and watch the parade, the fire trucks, everything. It's the typical Midwestern small town 4th of July parade. Uh, and and that's, something, that's something I can easily participate in. My concern, my chief concern is that, that there not be confusion in the church that we not confuse our love of America with our love for God, for Christ, for his church, that we uh, monitor carefully the boundaries. And if we had in front of us right now uh, some of the things that are published by by conservative, by evangelical, by people who claim to be very conscientious. Uh, If we we looked at examples of the blending of American history and and the Bible, uh, we, we would see that there is a problem out there that so many earnest, serious, conservative Christians, don't think carefully enough about the difference between standing up for America and standing up for Jesus.
0: Mm.
1: Those are not the same thing. And we, we want to understand the, I, I, we could talk forever about this, John, we, the, we want to understand that one is eternal. One is temporal. Uh, one is redemptive and one is not one is one is a, uh, the city of God and one is the city of man. Uh, It's not the worst example of the city of man, but it's still a city of man. And Christians need to think carefully through all of this and not be gullible uh, and not, not be complacent and blasé when, when uh, you know, city on a hill, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I I use as an example, right? This is what Jesus called his disciples said, you will be a city on a hill. And if we take that and give that to a nation state, and we do that so successfully that people can actually say to me, oh, did Jesus say that? Uh, Something has gone very wrong. And if that were an isolated case, that would be, there probably wouldn't be worth writing a book about, but it's not isolated. Uh, So much of the very vocabulary of scripture, the story of scripture, uh, the the the, um, the 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 story of redemption has been uh, America has been woven into that folded into that, and as if America is indispensable to God's work of redemption in the world. Uh, these are all things that Christians have to think about very seriously, and they need to be jealous about. Uh, uh, Defensive uh, and and about sharing that identity because we don't want to water down that identity and we don't want to uh, trivialize the identity of the most sacred things of all by by uh, by cooperating with them being being given to uh, entities that don't have that identity they have a legitimacy but they we we don't have to. We don't have to make America sacred in order to love America.
0: That, that's a good way to put it. And this applies to those who would on the right who would have a more triumphalistic uh, narrative of, of America or those on the left who have this emancipationist uh, narrative right. of what America 1619 or 1776 projects are both of them uh and not the projects themselves but well maybe the projects themselves (laughs) but they they both the people that are attracted to those things both have this tendency to sacralize uh america and the left especially the state uh, itself um we probably need to land the plane but i just want to let everyone know if you want to find out more about richard gamble you can go to richardmgamble.com pick up these books there there's a number of great books and i'm looking forward to reading more of your books dr gamble thank you so much
1: thank you john privilege
0: yeah god bless